Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we're busting some myths about ACL injury, rehabilitation and return to sport. Joining me is alumni distinguished professor Lynn Snyder-Mackler from the University of Delaware, where she's also academic director of the Physical Therapy Clinic. Lynn's research leadership over decades has driven important advances in sports physical therapy practice, particularly in ACL rehabilitation, return to sport and injury prevention. Lynn has also been instrumental in the clinical training of hundreds of physical therapy graduates who are now working across sports and orthopaedic practice internationally. I asked Lynn for her take on some statements we might hear from athletes, parents, coaches and other clinicians. Teenage girls shouldn't play soccer. It's too dangerous. That's a new one making the rounds of Twitter. And it is true that the biggest risk for an ACL injury is participation in jumping, pivoting, and cutting sports. Um, I don't think we should be discouraging young people from participating in physical activity or games or competition. That, That just seems totally silly to me. We don't wrap our kids in bubble wrap and keep them at home to keep them away from all the other horrible things that happen to teenagers. I think they, there are some nice new, there's some nice new, new evidence that really talks about things we can engage them in that might reduce their risk of knee injury, not just ACL injury, but knee injury and even lower extremity injury overall. Uh, but no, <clears throat> I would not keep them from playing soccer. So what are some of the things <clears throat> that you might recommend to say a parent listening who's got a teenage particularly a teenage daughter? Well, I think the the clinical practice guideline published in JOSPT last year about knee injury prevention programs, it was a nice uh, nice assembly of the evidence, but it also has really wonderful step-by-step videos and instructions that not just parents, but even youth coaches could use. So that's where I would send them. ACL reconstruction is the only reasonable treatment option for patients who want to return to sport after their injury. Well, that's a hard no. Um, I, I have to just take a couple seconds here to talk about when what happens when you when surgeons say that. I think what they really think is that they really believe that the passive the passive laxity is the cause of all of the problems when one has a ligament injury. And that's not really the case. They think about that very much in the knee. But if you ask almost any orthopedic surgeon, sports orthopedic surgeon, what do you do after a shoulder dislocation? Almost none of them will say they need to have a shoulder reconstruction right away. They say they send them to physical therapy for dynamic stabilization training, right? Make your muscles, see if your muscles can help you accommodate for the loss of that passive and passive laxative, that passive structure. We can do a lot of that in the knee. What I think is in informed decision making and a protract, you know, a protracted period of time where people test their knees out in a systematic way and then make a decision. What about the idea that ACL reconstruction is the only way to prevent post-traumatic knee osteoarthritis? Uh, the die is cast at, at the time of the ACL rupture and nothing can prevent uh at least not without 
question can prevent it, and certainly not ACL reconstruction. In fact, the the most recent literature suggests that early osteoarthritis is higher. You know, it happens earlier in the patients who have reconstruction than in the patients who don't. I think that is in part, again, related to participation in sport, exposure, exposure, exposure. One of the most interesting things about that is, well, if someone has an ACL reconstruction in their heads, they're doing that to return to sport, and a lot of them do return to high-level sport. And then if the folks who who didn't have reconstruction and decide maybe to go back to a lower level of sport, never participate again at that very highest level, that's also a factor in the development of NEOA. So it's really a very much individualized uh, individualized phenomenon. But it is absolutely false, a hard no, that ACL reconstruction prevents NEOA. Let's move on to management now. I'm hearing a lot that I should not prescribe resisted open chain quads exercises after an ACL reconstruction because I really I risk damaging the ACL graft. So there's a lot of of uh, history to that old wives' tale, really. I'd like to kill that. It's it's absolutely untrue, and most people uh, will will have folks walking around and doing closed chain exercises right away. And actually, walking is about thirteen, roughly percent strain on the ACL. So every step, and open chain quads exercises four to six percent. There's nothing dangerous. And in fact, it's the exact opposite because what we know from almost every study of patients after ACL reconstruction is the one determinant of outcome after ACL reconstruction is quad strength. And a good, strong quad is really a magic muscle in terms of prevention of osteoarthritis. That's kind of the key. And you know, it's, it's not surprising because it acts like a shock absorber. So in fact, the opposite is true. You should be doing open chain quad exercise and it does not stretch out the graft. Rehabilitation before an ACL reconstruction is a key way to maximize success after an ACL reconstruction. Well, there too, the evidence is is good. People talk about rehab before an ACL reconstruction. I think most surgeons think about getting to a quiet knee having full knee extension, the swelling is down, and they don't really have any pain when they walk. But the real question is, do we need to go beyond that quiet knee? And there's there's some evidence from our group in particular, from the Delaware Oslo cohort, compared to registry data, that patients really do do better afterwards, after reconstruction, if they have a a brief period of intense rehab. I mean, we do about 10 visits and that can be anywhere from two weeks to to a month of progressive strength and neuromuscular training where they continually test the knee. It, there, there are issues with, you know, people saying like, you know, we can't afford it, we're wasting, we're, we have visits to spend afterwards. I mean, again, this is going to be an individual decision, but I think that gives you a, an amazing opportunity especially with young athletes and their families and coaches, et cetera, to have, to get them into an informed discussion. I mean, teenagers just are devastated by this injury and they can't see past it and they just want to have a reconstruction and go back to sport. And 
if you give them a little bit of time and you give them and their families a little bit of information, I think it also makes their they're more engaged in their rehabilitation afterwards because they know it's not an easy fix. The surgeon goes in and fixes it and it's done. You touched on strength training. What about heavy strength training? So heavy strength training being a central pillar of high-quality ACL rehabilitation. I would say active rehab is is high-quality strength training. And, and what by that I mean low repetitions, high high weight if we were talking about a knee extension machine or or hip or whatever it is that you're talking about but where you are progressively increasing the resistance and keeping the reps low so where you're really looking for hypertrophy yes that's a that's that's a big deal now when someone's had other damage like cartilage damage or big meniscus damage they have concomitant bad joint already, like basically you could say post-traumatic knee OA at the time of the injury. Things that I would avoid are heavy closed chain exercise like squats and lunges because there's really, you can get the strength gains without, without putting that kind of excess, repetitive excess load on the knee. Let's move now to the transition to returning to sport. And I think this is a challenge for many of us as clinicians. What's your thoughts on timing? So is six months after reconstruction a good time to return to pivoting sports? There's burgeoning evidence that it's too early, probably related to the biology of the graft. Now, we're in the, we've always had this historical battle of time versus you know meeting criteria for return to activity and then ultimately return to play and performance. It's really both. There, there's some... Some again, some nice new evidence over the last couple of years where we actually have had some serial MRs of patients after ACL. And you can see sometimes at six months, it looks like, you know, a nice, depending on the, the kind of MRI, but basically a nice dark signal. But uh, more often than not, you start to see that in the nine to 12 month time period. It's progressive. It doesn't just all of a sudden look like an AC, this tendinous and all, all of a sudden look like an ACL. But we have to think about the biology, and then we need to think about, and this is how I look at criteria for return to sport, then we need to learn about how do we protect that with our muscles and our ability to train people to dynamically stable, stabilize their knee while that is healing. And then third, how do we keep the put, make the challenges like a ladder? where we would add smaller challenges and then move them up. Six months for me, I think, is too early. Our evidence from Delaware Oslo was nine months was kind of the magic number. Our data actually have the same trend line out to 12 months, but we didn't have enough statistical power to, to put any oomph behind that recommendation. But I can tell you clinically, I recommend that kids who are under 18, high school students, not return before a year. It's, it's a hard sell, but it's, uh, it is probably the best between meeting return to sport criteria, meaning strength performance tests, saying that they feel like they're ready to go back, and biology. I think it's the best way to go. What makes it a hard sell, and how do you overcome that? They're kids. Many people are listening to this. Sport has been a part of their life. It's just an integral part of their life every day, even if it's just 
getting up and going to the gym in the morning. Kids, if they are playing different sports in the year, you know, which which often happens in the U.S. at least, there's you know a kid will play field hockey and lacrosse or soccer and basketball or something like that. And they want to get back for that next competitive season. And they think as a 14-year-old or 15-year-old, if they miss a year, they've just missed out on this entire horrible, you know, this entire part of their life and their their social life and their interactions with their friends. So that's that's part of it. I think there are some people who have done a really good job at using that early time period, either before reconstruction or after, to talk to kids and their parents about how that student or student athlete could stay involved without putting their knee in danger for that year. And then helping them stay active in level one, level three sports, like get to the gym, do your strengthening, start to do agility drills. But but it is, it's just a hard sell to say you can't participate in this thing that is such a an integral part of your life for a year. Return to sport testing is something that you do once and you do it when you think the athlete's ready to go back to sport. No, I think you do it and then you, and if they fail, you have to adjust their rehabilitation program. Even if they're not actively in treatment, if they, if they fail these baseline return to activity parameters, you adjust their rehab program and retest them until they pass. This is not a uh, oh, your knee looks good. Let's test you. And then the person has, you know, a 75% quad deficit and big limb asymmetries and functional tests and not a lot of confidence. Those three things go together a lot. I wouldn't send them back to sport. Young athletes with an ACL injury are doomed to get another one. The athlete's age is the critical thing here, not other factors. No, we're back to the same answer to the question after question. And it is exposure to jumping, pivoting, and cutting sports. The reason young people have uh, the, have this highest frequency of re-injury, contralateral ACL, and graft rupture is because they have the most opportunity for it to happen. They have more, just more exposures, higher frequency. And in general, the younger they are, the more likely they are to go back to that jumping, pivoting, and cutting sport. It is what activity level you return to or returning to level one sport and passing a return to activity battery that determine what happens to you, not your age. Age is just a surrogate for activity. It's a young person, they're more likely. Yes, they are, but because they have more a greater opportunity, not because they're young. In your place in Delaware, what are the return to sport tests that you are using? We use a battery of tests throughout their rehabilitation that are that are similar and we use we set different criteria for different activities. So for example, we'll do quad strength testing throughout their rehabilitation and we will use that to guide for example when we would let them start to begin a running progression on the treadmill. So for that we would look at a zero to trace effusion as measured by a sweep test full range of motion equal to the other side and 80% quad strength. Then we begin a running progression. They have to complete a running progression in uh, in Delaware of getting to two miles without any effusion or knee pain. So we also consistently throughout rehabilitation use soreness rules, meaning knee soreness, not quad soreness. We like quad soreness, but we you don't want their knees, knee joints to hurt. 
And um, so we titrate how we progress activities and rehabilitation using that and knee effusion. So if they reestablish an effusion after it's gone away or they're holding this two plus effusion, we're going to be thinking that there's something that we're, we're doing or they're doing outside of rehab that's too much weight bearing activity. So we have to, t- to titrate that. Then as they're going through this running progression at the end of it, we test their knees again. And we could do this. We could do return to activity testing if they're racing through rehab as early as 12 weeks. Um, but we wouldn't encourage them to return at that time point. Then we do a series of four hop tests that Frank Noyes, Dr. Noyes published in the 80s. So a single leg hop for three hops for a distance, single leg hop for distance, a triple straight ahead hop and a triple crossover hop, and then a six meter timed hop. And we do that twice, average it and make a ratio with the, make a limb symmetry index. And for them to pass our return to activity battery, they have to have a 90% on all of those. And we also use two self-report measures as criterion measures, the knee outcome survey activity of daily living score and um, just a global rating of knee function on a scale of one to a hundred. How is your knee functioning compared to before your injury? Then we do a progressive return to activity and sport. And that starts with, um, agility drills, really sort of standard kind of things, and then adding an opponent. And that is where the danger zone is. And we progress them through that. We have in in the last few years added um, the knee injury prevention program components from primary prevention to the tail end of our rehab it's nice now that we're asking them to hold off because it gives them a little, us a little bit of time to do that. And if they go back to that, to the uh, CPG that was published in JOSPT, people can look at those videos and those exercises. And those are really things people can do on their own or they can do in groups or with a teammate. So it's not something that necessarily, that necessitates them having to come into the clinic for all that time. But that also gives you time for them to develop and for the graph to mature. And then they finally begin to, drill with their team. We talk about return to sport as being a one-off, yes, no, you do nothing versus you do everything, but it's sounding much more like you're describing a progression and there would be part of this time where people are starting to transition to being back in a team environment, but there might be some modifications there. Yeah, absolutely. And then we, you can't take the our, – our essential role as sports PTs is to – ensure that they're as safe as possible, as prepared as possible to go back. Once you say, okay, the graft is mature enough, they have enough of these other things that they've shown us that we think they're able to control the knee and protect it, they're strong enough. At that point, it's a coaching decision. So if you have someone who's who at 80% is better than everybody else on the team and we say they're safe, then the coach is going to put them back in the game. And that at that point, it's out of our hands. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't really encroach on those decisions because that's our job in sport, uh, in sports PT, no matter where, what joint it is, or no matter what. Like you say, fine, they're ready to participate with the team. You tell me if they're they're performing well enough for you to put them on the field. 
One of the decisions that athletes are often asking us about as PTs is graft choice. Let's talk, so let's talk graft type for a second. Hamstring graft, yes or no for an athlete? Yes. Uh, I think the only graft that I would say no for a young athlete for a primary reconstruction is an allograft. The evidence, again, is pretty strong that it probably takes a lot longer to incorporate and there's a mismatch in allograft between how they feel, which is great. Usually they re- rehab fast and the state of that new graft in the knee. So that mismatch has led to, I think, to the higher rupture rates in allograft. And that seems to persist. The, this failure continues to happen. You know, more, more allografts fail even, you know, six or eight years later. The primary grafts that are typically used for young people are hamstring, double, double-stranded hamstring, semitendinosus gracilis, so medial hamstring, bone patellar tendon bone, so mid, generally mid-third of the patellar tendon, although some people take the medial third, and quads tendon. They can do that with a piece of the patella or free graft. The free graft seems to be what most people are doing right now, doing a soft tissue graft, and that is from the rectus. So those three graphs are being used. From registry data, we're seeing that the rupture rate for the bone patellar tendon bone is slightly lower, the re-rupture rate. The hamstrings and the quad tendons are higher. In fact, the most recent registry data from the Danis registry is that the quads tendon re-rupture rate is the highest of all three. But again, we're talking small percentages, a couple of percentage points between them, and all below 10. We, we just um, published a paper in JOSPT. The lead author was Angela Hutchinson-Smith. We had the ability to see with this repetitive quad strength testing and return to sport or return to activity testing throughout the course of rehabilitation, if there were differences, even with essentially the same rehab progression, and when the patients with these different kinds of graphs were ready to return to activity or pass this return to activity boundary. And also when they were ready for more challenging rehab even before that. So when they had a quiet knee, again, after surgery, when they had no swelling and full range of motion and no pain. And what we found was the bone patellar tendon bone patients met those criteria for quiet knee or readiness for you know more progressive rehab about two months later than the other graphs, and then two more months longer to meet the return to activity progression. So their return to activity was pushed back four months later than the hamstrings. That in and of itself, you know, if the hamstrings are passing at six months, we know the we know now in retrospect that that graft isn't ready. What we need to think about is graft biology as well. And even if they pass this return to activity battery, we need to consider biology matters. Then we should touch on ACL repair that's um, really being promulgated with um, certain types of rupture generally off, not mid-substance. And um, a a lot of people are doing it, patients, feel good. I don't think we've seen any good studies that have demonstrated that it's effect that it that it works. 
Um, we've seen some early reports, but we know that we have to wait and see how this goes in the long term. There is, however, a group from Boston Children's and Brown University, so Harvard and Brown. It's uh, Martha Murray is the uh, the orth. She's a she's a mechanical engineer and an orthopedic surgeon at Boston Children's, and Braden Fleming, who's a a biomedical engineer at Brown. And they have worked on this biologically enhanced ACL repair from small animals to large animals. And now they, fin- they completed first in human trials under an FDA submission that have been published that look really uh, very encouraging. And now they're, they're doing a, a finishing up a randomized trial two year, their two year report on that. With the, in, in collaboration with the Moon investigators, a direct comparison of bear to bone patellar tendon bone in many, many sites across uh, North America. So they're really putting it through rigorous testing. And there too, the patients who have repair feel better even faster than the hamstring people do. And when your knee feels good and you feel it's hard to hold people back, but I think this is another place where biology is going to matter and they're going to have to hold off for nine to 12 months to make a fair comparison to the other graphs. Lynn, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of clinical experience and research experience. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to your thoughts on managing ACL injuries. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's really fun to get this information out. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.